Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Well, this week we've got a real treat for you because as trailed before, we are heading into Ukraine. Why are we going? Well, we've been doing the podcast for almost a year now, in fact, probably just longer than a year. And we've spoken to an awful lot of people, both in the UK, in America, but also, of course, in Ukraine. And we felt it was time for us to get out there, test the water, find out from people on the ground what the spirit really is like in Ukraine. And also to get a gauge of the optimism of whether or not the recent counteroffensive is heading in the right direction and then ultimately whether the Ukrainians can win this war. Okay, we're going to be going to lots of places and talking to lots of interesting people. But if on the way, as we put these programs out, you would like to know something more, ask some questions, delve a little bit deeper into the circumstances, then please do send the questions in to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. What comes next is quite extraordinary recording, actually, of our first night in Ukraine. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Patrick, here we are, day one in Ukraine. We've found our way to Lviv by bus. Took a while, an hour and a half delay at the border post, but not so bad, actually. I, I actually thought it was quite an enjoyable little trip. Um, as soon as we got out of the bus, the first thing that happened is the alarm went off. That is the alarm to go to the air raid shelter. We had a quick look around and saw what the locals were doing and no one seemed particularly phased, so we weren't either. Found our way to our hotel and here we are in one of the most beautiful settings I've seen for a long time. Suggested by Joe Lindsley, who's here with us today. Joe, lovely to see you again. Great to be here with you all in Lviv. Uh, we also have Askel Kruzhenitsky, um, another of the friends of the podcast, and Patrick, of course. So, what a setting. Joe, why did you suggest we came here? Well, you know, I just, as we were meeting here, I was just getting off the train. I, was, I took two days to go to the Carpathian Mountains, uh, which is great that Ukraine has that resource, a place where people go, uh, whether they're wounded soldiers or volunteers, to, to take a small break and come back with new energy. But when I'm here in Lviv, I guess it's fairly public, so <laughs> we can mention this fact, but uh, the cafe here, Cafe Fatset, uh, is, is sort of my headquarters. And I'm actually, I'm writing a story about it now because in just a few hours here, one evening here, as, we're, as we'll see tonight, you can see every slice of life at war. You'll meet soldiers who are missing their legs. You know, you might look at people and everyone looks happy and they're having a drink or they're playing cards over there, but everyone has a story about what they've gone through. Uh, very often, for example, uh, there's a group called the Frontline Kitchen, one of my favorite stories from Ukraine. Uh, every day, volunteers from around the world make about 20,000 meals here in Lviv, like borscht, like MRE, meal ready to eat, but homemade with local ingredients. For example, borscht, all the soldier has to do is add hot water. And these volunteers come from all over the world, and after their shift uh, working, they come to this cafe. And you can hear the most amazing stories uh, about what drove people, uh, you know, what was the moment of decision when they said, I must go help in Ukraine. And so here at this cafe, you can see, if I wanted to show the world uh, in just a few hours what the story of this fight for Ukrainian victory really means, this cafe is the best starting point. Because from, the, from soldiers who are about to go to battle, people who are on leave, uh, two volunteers from all over the world come here to help. This is the, my favorite place for stories in one succinct space here in Ukraine. And they have great food. It is a gorgeous spot. I mean, uh, it's like classic Habsburg 
wonderful old 19th century architecture, cobbled streets. There's a buzz on the streets. Everyone's enjoying themselves. They're enjoy. They're having the kind of evening paseo, they would say, in, in Italy, just strolling up and down, seeing and being seen. So it is the epitome of of civilization. I always think back to Joseph Roth, the great, the guy who hymned, you know, the perfection of, of, of the empire and the sense of bringing together all these cultures in one place and sharing this idea of, of how life should be lived. Now, also here, we've got Askol Kruchelnitsky. You've heard his name many times on the podcast. And when we were walking up here, we actually walked past the Opera House and there on the wall is a plaque commemorating Askol's Ancestor, I th- thought she was called the Lviv Nightingale <laughs> or something. Like that. Yeah, apparently, I got that wrong. But she was a great what, soprano, was she? Is that right, Askel? Well, the the Opera Theatre is actually named after her. She was called Slomia Krushlinitska, and the Opera Theatre is named um, after her. And um, she was the daughter of a Ukrainian Catholic priest from um, the region of Ternopil, which is the adjoining oblast or region east of here. And um, she studied in Milan, and she may have been Puccini's mistress, but uh, the first time that he wrote Madame Butterfly, it wasn't a success, and he rewrote the opera for her voice as the female lead, and she went round the world, and it became the big hit that it still is. I, though, um, have got a lousy singing voice. <laughs> Amazing story. Now, Asko, when we were wandering up here to meet Joe, um, I was commenting on the fact that everyone seemed completely unconcerned that there'd been one or two air raids today, and. Uh, and, you know, I've already mentioned the fact that when, when we actually heard it, no one was reacting. And you said, well, that's, this, is, this is an example of, of a people, a country, a nation saying, you know, putting two fingers up, basically, and saying we're not going to have our lives destroyed by the fact that we're a country at war. So tell me a little bit more about that. Well, when um, the full-blown invasion began last year in February, for the first weeks and months people did diligently or more diligently take shelter and then there was a kind of rhythm of destruction and that developed sometimes there would be multiple air raid sirens a day but there wouldn't actually be a a rocket strike the way it works is that the air raid sirens go off when the ukrainian detect a rocket or a missile has been launched and then they wait until they uh, figure out the trajectory. And then if it's going over or somewhere else, uh, then the all clear is sounded. But in the first months, people did go into shelters. And then um, it, there was a kind of pattern uh, where rockets really would, missiles would strike leave on successive days and and there were casualties so people would go into the shelters but the longer it's gone gone on it's not blasé it may be a defiance a component of ukrainian resilience or as david said like two fingers or if you're american one finger and you've already seen uh during these alarms young couples with their kids and in in strollers they would have had to have spent half the afternoon in a shelter they're not prepared to to do that so it is a kind of defiance sometimes it goes wrong because there is a rocket strike 
and people who have been in parks or in a shopping center are killed because they haven't taken um, shelter. But I, I think it is part of this Ukrainian resilience or defiance. If I could add, because thinking about that, you know, when there's an alarm, and even when I've been in Kharkiv, and there's missiles coming down, and the fact that no one runs, that gives other people courage and strength. You know, stay cool, be strong. But, they're, you know, the Ukrainians are also smart about it. And on last Saturday, you know, go back to July 6th, there was a big attack, rocket attack, uh, on Lviv. And it hit a civilian residential building when people were sleeping. There were fatalities. And then a month before... There were three of the Iranian Shahid suicide drones. And that was terrifying because for a long time, things like that would get shot down well before they got to Lviv. But Ukrainians must conserve their air defense. And so you could hear in succession this lawnmower or moped-like sound, even here in the center. I was outside at 4.30 in the morning, and you hear it coming closer and closer and closer. And then right almost at the last moment, you begin to hear the machine gun fire frantically trying to shoot it down and that's quite terrifying and I, I i was here at this cafe the next day with many foreign volunteers including some elderly people from america and germany and elsewhere and i was so happy and actually these were the volunteers of that kitchen they were there the next morning chopping vegetables not a you know okay a little bit shaken but still going and on saturday last saturday here in lviv we had um, air alarm throughout the country and but everyone looks at their phones to see the status of this and if you walk down this street no one was running, but everyone was looking at their phone because you have, uh, it says, uh, okay, missiles coming. Uh, it looks like they're going toward Kiev. Oh, now they've turned to, toward Chernobyl. You know, maybe you get a drink for every time, every new update, because uh, it is a little bit, uh, people, were, people were anxious, but no one was running and panicking, but they're intelligent enough to, to take a look at it and say, okay, if it's coming this direction, you know, then you have to batten the hatches and be prepared. Would you say, Joe, that you think that that, the worst is over. We, you're never going to get back to that early phase where people are living literally in fear of their lives and that, that the whole sort of tempo of their existence is, is disrupted by what the Russians are doing. I think as far yeah, the very beginning, people were in the shelters for, you know, entire afternoons or evenings at a time. Uh, so when it comes, pe people will not live like that. But when, it, when we think about the worst... And I, I've really thought this for a long time. I mean, look, even, and you would know as military historians, I would ask you if, if this makes sense. But the closer we get to victory, the more Putin is going to attack places that have not been attacked. For example, look at Odessa. And everyone thought that Putin, or many people thought Putin loved Odessa the way uh, Hitler loved Paris, that pearl the Black Sea. But the fact that he would hit a Russian Orthodox church in the center of the city, you know, he's trying to scare the world. And I think that Lviv is also a target for that, and people feel that, uh, for sure. We, we, it's interesting you mentioned the, the, uh, the cathedral in Odessa because Patrick and I mentioned that on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I actually felt, you know, I take your point, Joe, I mean, he's capable of anything, but I actually felt that was an error. And, that you know, so it's been so closely aligned to Catherine the Great and, you know, and all the things that Putin loves. You kind of think someone's made a mistake there. Uh, and, you know, their head probably was on the, on the chopping board. Anyway, that's it for this half. Do join us after the break. A question for you, Askel. I mean, when we came into Reshov Airport in Poland on our way here, we could see the Patriot batteries lined up on the side of the airport. I mean, I don't know how many there were, but according to the poll who was on the flight next to me, he said there are a lot of them there. 
and yet there are only a handful in Ukraine. Does that irritate you, infuriate you, frustrate you? Well, I'm British and I'm American, but it does. Because if Ukrainians, and Ukrainians are saying um, that if we had all this kit, this gear, a year ago, or at the beginning of this year, then um, there wouldn't be these almost complaints, this indignant tone about the Ukrainian offensive isn't going as fast as we hoped or anticipated. There's a a reason why there were so many um, Patriot batteries at Zhezhov Airport, because that is one of the main conduits for American weapons coming into So might they be uh, coming on here then? I'm sorry? (laughs) Might they be coming on here? This is just a kind of staging post for them. Um, Well... They, they've been very effective where they have been used, yeah. principally Kyiv. And as I understand it, there's one which is being sort of roaming yeah. around um, Ukraine and it suddenly cropped up near the um, border with Russia in uh, the Chernihiv region. And the Russians weren't expecting it there. And it shot down a number of Russian planes inside um, Russia. So they're obviously very useful, the Patriot batteries. But in general, Ukrainians are frustrated that um, because they say, if we had the instruments last year or at the beginning of this year, um, the situation would look completely different. And we know that the Ukrainians have been dying, they've been shedding their blood, they're ready to to do that, but they need to be p- properly equipped. And they keep saying, give us the instruments and we'll finish the job. And that's more important than ever now, I think. I have sat at this very table with soldiers who are now dead, and uh, you know, sometimes from before the war, uh, but at this very table, and uh, and others right at that table over there who've lost arm, uh, arms and legs uh, in the war, and you know, I think as we look at you know, we keep hearing the numbers in America are more than a hundred billion, and it's it's very irresponsible. It's normal from Washington, but like that's not actually the amount of money that we've spent. So much as you know, it's a valuation of old equipment, and I think the more and more the story to share is the story of the Ukrainians who in 2014. You know, they risk bullets to have freedom. They refuse to be controlled by, by anyone on the outside. And I think for anyone frustrated with their governments around the world, Ukrainians give such a great example. Uh, and, and of people who will, uh, you know, n- nothing will make them surrender. We've seen that. And, you know, the spirit of the people of Odessa, after they were attacked, as you said, maybe it was a mistake because it, Odessa is a Russian-speaking city, or it was. I haven't been there since that attack, but from everything I've heard talking to people there, there's a new radical defiance uh, in Odessa. And, and so for people who, I, I think it's so easy to support Ukraine, just give them the basic things, and you have people willing to give up everything they have for this idea to be free. And on this very street, uh, this was the headquarters of the dissidents in Soviet times. That cafe, uh, the next block, uh, the Armenian cafe, is where sort of the hippies and the uh, philosophers would meet. And there's a story, maybe it's legendary, but I know this from people who were there in that time. The owner of the cafe would put baklava on the counter when the, when the secret police, when the, when the KGB was nearby, and it meant just shut up and talk about the weather. Uh, some of these people still hang out on this street. The Student Brotherhood, which was part of the, the movement uh, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s to break away from the Soviet Union, their headquarters was the, the next block to our right. So this
this was, I mean, this is deep in the spirit of these people to be, to resist tyranny. And now once again, that's happening right here, even on the same street. Yeah, I love that story, Joe, not least because as Askold knows, we were talking about this earlier. I'm descended on my father's side from Armenians. And uh, there is a little bit of Armenia all over the world. Of course, they're a great diaspora, but it's, it's great to hear that there's this kind of seditious nature, you know, <laughs> this kind of fighting against the establishment. La last question for both of you. I, I know you've both travel a lot in Ukraine for uh, your journalistic reasons and otherwise, but tell me about your most recent trips to the East and the sort of spirit of the soldiers you came across and, and the kind of give us a sense of what might be coming. Um, I was in what can be called the Bakhmut front and I was staying with friends who are soldiers from a brigade called the 10th Separate Mountain Assault Brigade. And they've been stationed or deployed along that front since May last year. They're uh, very experienced at the beginning of this um, full-blown invasion. They were actually northwest of Kiev in a region called Zhitomir. And they were fighting Russian forces that had come through Belarus to invade Ukraine. They performed really well, and they've been fighting well there. Although, like everybody else, they've been taking lots of casualties. By coincidence, a relative of mine, who is a doctor, and he'd been a, the chief doctor in a hospital in the Ternopil region, he'd been drafted into the army and he chose to be a fighting officer not a, a medic and his battalion is one of the new units that was trained up in preparation for this offensive and i spoke to their colonel in charge of their battalion who said that 98 percent of the men were completely new no military experience and they had four months training i saw him in the area of a place called Liman Siversk, where there's severe fighting. And um, he'd been there for a month. And he um, wasn't in a state of shock, but I could see um, something about him had changed in that, in that month. Part of it was because as a doctor, he was watching people in front of him that he couldn't help anymore. And he said that people, nobody was saying we've got to surrender, leave. But he said that every meter is drenched in blood, in death, and in maimed people. So a terrible cost is being, being paid there. But I really haven't throughout. Uh, last year I was here for 10 months and I was at the front lines many times and, and this time I've been here since early June. There isn't a spirit of uh, we've got to end this, we've got to negotiate some sort of peace. People, the, the morale is, is quite high, extraordinarily high, c considering how much death and casualties are being experienced. But also they know from um, seeing what's happened in areas that the Russians occupied and then left. They know what awaits Ukrainians if there's a, a Russian victory. So they don't think that there's any option but to fight on. 
Joe, what's what's your experience? Well, been? I would say for everyone, and you know, I was just in uh, the city of Kharkiv for about a month. Uh, I love that place. I mean, I used to call it the edge of the free world. Now I call it the center of the free world. And uh, for a while, in the maybe uh, you know last fall, it was a wild east or wild west. I mean, you would drive 100 miles an hour within the city. You never knew what was going to happen. Now it's come back to life, but you still have so many fierce people. Uh, collaborating for victory and I would say whether you're here in Lviv or in uh, Nikopol which gets shelled every day and night down in the south uh, or in Kharkiv uh, everyone first acknowledges that uh, without greater support without fighter jets uh, without the ability to use long-range weapons this is the bloodbath is going to get worse and and that's heavy it weighs heavily on every single person I know but in the meantime, and it's the spirit of not being victims, you know, Ukrainians just keep going. And so our team, UkrainianFreedomNews.com, and uh, we, we've been collaborating, making new collaborations with small, uh, the, the story of Ukrainian democracy is not big uh, government institutions and big organizations. It's small people collaborating. For example, this cafe has led to so many connections. Uh, so people say, you know, I'll take a walk through Lviv, and someone says, I need a truck for my friend at the front. And so I, I talk to my audience and say, hey, we need to raise money for this. And, and we've really found a new energy in these collaborations the past uh, month and a half, knowing that, you know, we've, that we've had so many injuries. And uh, there's a Trevoja uh, right now, which, by the way, uh, uh, Trevoja literally means air anxiety. Uh, the, the word means three weights in Ukrainian language. Um, but we have, um, we, we've been, everyone realizes how important it is to get, uh, every individual soldier, everything they need, especially drones, really especially drones and trucks. And so while we're waiting for the bigger stuff, th there's the focus to, to supply these guys as much as we possibly can at the small level. I went to, uh, when I was in the east, to a demining camp. And I, you know, you always hear about hor how horrible mining is. And I never could have imagined. I mean, some of these mines, you know, they're plastic. You can't easily detect them. Uh, I was detecting with dummy mines, and even then it was nerve-wracking. That's what they're facing down there because Russia had so much time uh, to prepare. And, and the longer we let this go on, the more that damage is going to spread. So that's the message. So every, everyone keeps their head down and keeps going. Uh, yeah, there's a heaviness. And, you know, everyone has moments where they break down. But that's where, you know, you, you sit down here at a place like this, you boost each other up, and you keep going. Okay, you may be able to hear in the background uh, the air, ride, air raid sirens are going again. Let's hope it's uh, a false alarm. Okay, we'll be back soon.